What's good? Ryan Rosillo from our L.A. studio. Saruti back in Bristol, so it's nice to be home for a couple days. We had a long stretch there. You were gone. I was gone. I think I ended up being gone. I don't know, man. It, was like, it wasn't 30 days, but it started. It was It was a long time. I think I was gone 19 or 20 days or something like that. I was gone for so like it's, 20 days, so what's up? Yeah, you win then. If I had said 21 days, were you? would you have said 22 what are you Probably. doing there? Probably. I would have been lying. But How are you doing? How is it feeling? I just want to get another update on you. A lot of people that didn't know about not going to the wedding really disappointed in me. So I don't think you and I have to do it over again. But there's a lot of people that just think I'm a POS because of that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, you're just being shamed this entire time. As I explained, it's not that big of a deal. I understand. You don't it. care. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> to be honest, like, Ryan, I love you. But, you know, we had a million different things going on that day. So, yeah, right. It's not, you know, like, it's not the end it, of the world. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't the reason the wedding wasn't better. Um, and I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to explain that kind of thing. Our relationship is strong enough to survive this. <laughs> That's how I feel. I mean, yeah, I would hope so. It's not, I mean, plus, like, as I said, I think, uh, you know, you got a lot going on. You got to do Van Pelt Sports Center and, you know, it's not the end of the world. I'll be, be back out again. I'm going to go to Sayulita with you and Maddie. Yeah, we will see each other at some other point in the future. I think I'm going to come back out before the holidays. So. We shall see. I'm not talking about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, I think I'm going to be, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I'm pretty sure I know I'm not going back to Martha's Vineyard, but, uh, that's, that's just a little bit too much. But yeah, it was, um, it was an unbelievable. I don't know. I don't know what to do with the whole experience thing. World Series. Hey, wait a minute. Celtics Magic, World Series, Baton Rouge, side trip in Nashville. Then went down to New Orleans Sunday morning to watch the Saints and Rams in person. Had a 6 a.m. flight on New Orleans to get back to L.A., which is weird because I got back to L.A. at 8.30 in the morning. And because I had to wake up at 4 in New Orleans, I went, you know what I'm not going to do? Answer any of these texts from people that are out on a Sunday night in New Orleans. <laughs> because I don't want to. I'm done. I'm going home. We've made the trip. It's been incredibly successful. Speaking of trips, by the way. Heading to Norman, Oklahoma for Bedlam this weekend. I'll be there Friday night late, so nobody looking for me around Oklahoma City in the streets. Uh, I'm just going to be going right up to Norman, maybe get a workout in in the morning, hosting the Nissan Heisman house. you got Billy Sims there, and then I'll be there for the game. And then I'm going to Vegas on Sunday. I feel like a comedian. Some of these comedians that have had sports talk shows in the beginning, like before we get to anything that you want to hear about, I'm going to be at the Chuckle Hut. I feel like a lot of guys go chuckle hot. I got to come up with something different. Laugh Factory. Laugh Factory is a real one. Um, chuckle Hut's got to be real too. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a Chuckle Hut, but I don't know who started Chuckle Hut, and I feel like I can be more original than that. Zingers, how about that? I'm going to be doing two sets at Zingers in Toledo. It's uh, two sets. Yeah, right next to be, the Sears. Yep, right next to the Sears. That's out of business, but yeah, that's what we're doing. So anyway, I'm going to be in Vegas with the Ringer guys. For the football podcast, we're doing this hybrid thing, and so I'm going to be gone again for a little bit, but then I'm, I'm going to be able to come home. So, I don't know. I almost dunked yesterday. It, wow. Did you hurt yourself? Mm, not too bad. Okay. I just felt really good. When's spry. the last time you did dunk? I've never dunked. Wow. So, you're you're peaking athletically post-40. I'm a war... I'm like, what I'm doing right now is off the charts. Tom Brady stuff. Yeah, it is. And I don't even have a nutritionist or a wife that's on my case all the time. I've got none of that. I have just 
sheer determination, and I almost threw it down. I go, man, I just feel spry today. Even though my knees never feel like they're going to work, and they have this slow crunching thing that sounds a little bit of like Smoothie King. Just look at that. New Orleans reference, Smoothie King, because I just left there. Has anybody in the history of mankind dunked for their first time after age 40? I got to wonder, because when I almost threw it down, I go, I could do this. I think I could do a real six-week intense explosion thing here, which would probably hurt me five years from now, or probably weights. in two. Yeah, I should start ankle weighting it around. But I go, all right, so I'm I'm basically right there. I actually think it's mental now more than physical, because I've just never done it. And um, I think we need to talk to Guinness, because has there ever been somebody that dunked for the first time at 43? I, I, I... And this is all steroid-free. This Has anyone, clean, I wonder clean if anyone's urine. ever went to Guinness and been like, hey, is there a record of people dunking for the first time post 40? That actually would be the Guinness category. That would be the Guinness record. They'd be like, well, we don't know if, when the first dunk, non dunker happened, but we know that you're the only one that's ever asked. So right now, that's a record. <laughs> I think you chalk it up to a win. I've already, well, I haven't dunked yet. Remember when I hung on the rim and, and Canel was annoyed? He was like, that was, that was stupid. And he was kind of right. But I think he was more annoyed because I could still hang on the rim and he couldn't. Yeah, he prob- he would be the guy to, to put ankle weights on after that point and then try to dunk, you know, f- because you saw because he saw you do it. So he's like, well, I, I have to. I, I'm a better athlete than Ryan. I obviously was a pro, you know, baseball and football nothing player. bothered him more like, than when I would beat yeah. him in all of our athletic stuff. So he probably really tried after that to dunk at some point. Which, do you remember when I won, won the accuracy football contest? Yeah, it didn't go over well. And then he said that we hadn't started yet. Yeah, he. It's like, it's like, I love Danny. Like, what do you mean that it hasn't started? Not yet? the best we, loser. He just if did we're being it. Honest. Then the marshmallow golf ball thing, where I got on the first one, and oh, after that's he, right. That killed him. That killed him. And I just got to walk away. And then I that horrible wrong sneakers game of three. That was brutal. So tired. Uh, all right. I love well, that, though. yeah, we have. I haven't really even done anything yet. I had some minor thoughts. I watched all the Lakers T Wolves last night. This Derrick Rose stuff is nuts. Now, granted, the Lakers won, so that was cool. I don't want to spend a ton of time in the Lakers, but Derrick Rose went for thirty-one, and apparently he can shoot threes now. Missing that last one, but he's seven and nine. But I want to throw out something that I don't know if anybody's picked up on yet: the Jimmy Butler log. You ready for this? Hit the me. games he hasn't played, he played the opener and then Cleveland. He didn't play at Dallas, played the Pacers at Toronto, Milwaukee, played against the Lakers, then didn't play against Utah, then played against Golden State, then didn't play at Portland, played the last two games in L.A. I'm going to go ahead and throw out this theory that Butler is only going to play the big market games when he can, and then when he rests, he'll come back and play in that smaller market. So will there be a New York, Brooklyn, Boston L.A., Dallas, Houston. Well, he did sit Dallas. All right. I guess I just said that. I, I think there's going to be something there where it may not be 100%, but there's going to be like a weird, selfish Jimmy Butler part that I'm early on here where I think there's certain markets. It's not about him. I mean, we know this isn't anything about other than him being a pain in the you-know-what and trying to get out there, which I thought the funniest thing was Tyus Jones when he went to go watch his brother play. Trey Jones is the point guard for that Duke team that's insane. Uh he was getting interviewed by Laura Rutledge, I think, and he's like, yeah, Jimmy was supposed to come, and I couldn't get a flight, so Jimmy gave me his plane, 
And he's, oh, he's so selfless. But like, except for the part where he's destroying the rest of your team's season, dude. That was an incredible quote. <laughs> the selflessness of Jimmy Butler giving up a jet, which is great, while he's simultaneously being the worst employee in the NBA. Yeah, I don't want to sit here and say that Jimmy Butler you know, wasn't doing a nice deed. Yeah, it's that really seems, nice. It seems calculated, doesn't it? Like, I don't know. Like, I need yeah, to, maybe. I don't know. I mean, story out. Like, it's good. It's a win for me. Everything's calculated with him. Everything is. And, you know, when he says, oh, I'm just showing up, like, he's just become incredibly unlikable. He's, he's a really unlikable guy, uh, for this season. And I give Mark Jackson credit because I would, I'd say that Jackson on a broadcast in the past has had a tendency to kind of defend the players all the time. And I don't know if that's because he expects to be a coach again soon. You know, it's just safer that way. He wouldn't be the first guy to ever do it. But he uh, he was critical of Butler last night. So good job by Jackson. Can I throw something else at you that you didn't expect to hear today? Go ahead. I'm excited. Are you? I'm intrigued. Right. Are you intrigued? Okay. I'm just double-checking it because the numbers could have dipped after last night's loss. But is Sacramento... Look, they're sneaky good because they're six and five. And let's go through their losses. Jazz, no problem there. They did give up a million points to the Pelicans in the second game. Remember when they were giving up all these points and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? They beat the Thunder, who are kind of weirdly odd, but Westbrook's in and out. They won last night against Cleveland. It wasn't easy. Paul George, I could do a whole nother Paul George thing, but I'm, I'm not sure. Here's a, here's one I'll throw at you. I tweeted this out last night. Unfair to rip the Oladipo trade because the Oladipo that was traded to the Pacers isn't close to like what the guy is now. So even taking out the Sabonis part and forgetting the contract, like that trade was absolutely destroyed by the media. And I had NBA front offices make fun of me when I said, ah, that's probably the best you could do for George. They go, look at Oladipo's contract. That's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. Um, let me think. Let me think back to this. Oladipo for George was was destroyed. Okay, um, everybody made fun of the Pacers, and so I'm not even counting that part in. I guess I'm just sick of watching Paul George and expecting it to be different because it's never going to be different. So in a way, he might be the perfect guy to play with Westbrook, and it was happening again last night with with Sh- with Schroeder out there, you know. And you just go, okay, so you're deferring to him. Um, but I would right now, just all things even, same contract, whatever. I don't, even, I don't even need the Sabonis part of it. I'd rather go to war with Oladipo. Thoughts? I So I, as a Magic fan, I may be biased here, but I, I agree with you on this whole thing that it's probably the best that they could have gotten for him at the time. That's OKC. But I don't even know if, if Indiana knew what they were getting in Oladipo. No. Like there's no way they could have even envisioned it. Like this is, this is insane. Like, when I tweeted out, awesome it was... Player. It's okay. I had a couple guys reach out in front office and be like, what are you thinking, dude? I remember landing and seeing my phone. I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, man, front office guys, they might be right. They're like, this is a terrible – look at Oladipo's contract. This is stupid, bro. And so go ahead. I mean, you're the Oladipo expert. Yeah, no, you I know mean, him better than anybody. Yeah, and I, I mean, he was there for, I think, what, three-plus years in Orlando, and I liked him. I mean, I, I obviously didn't want them to trade him or anything, and it didn't work out for the Magic, but – I don't think he's the player he is today if he just stays with Orlando or if he even stays in Oklahoma City. Like it's totally a, it's agree. a perfect environment for him in Indiana. And honestly, at the beginning of his career, like he he wasn't finishing finishing at the rim. He wasn't a great shooter, and now he's all of those things. He's taking over games late. He's a better ball handler. Uh, he's he's improved. 
a million times over. And I have no idea if, like, some people like to say, oh, it's because he spent the, what, the year with Westbrook and Westbrook taught him how to do this. I have no idea no, if that's true or not at no, all. I but don't think that's true. I don't, he's an incredible player. And I don't think he, he is the guy he is today if he stays in either of those places, Orlando or, or Oklahoma City. Yeah, I guess I'm just watching more and more and I'm about to lose it on a bunch of, of this, this league in a, in a critical way. And it's not personal or anything like that, but if you think, okay, 450 players and don't worry, Sacramento, I haven't forgot about you. I'll get back to this point. It's a quick one. So don't get too, don't be too anxious about it. But if you're 450 players, is 1% of the league special? Is it 2%? You know, I mean, 1%, we're talking about a handful of dudes. It's probably 1% of the league is special. There's probably a bottom 30% that could or could not be in the league, depending on just their roster situation, contract, or somebody in the staff like him. You know, is he a good guy that never expects minutes, who's not a problem? The kind of the Kendrick Perkins role. They're not all perks, you know what I mean? But there's, is it 30% of the league that could be in and out that's all transitional? And then there's this middle chunk, and then that can be cut up into a bunch of things. But there's this big chunk. Let's say it's 10% of the league outside of that top 20 players. This, and I don't, I know I'm kind of like having this pie chart thing in my head. So, Saru, you call me out here if this is too confusing. So, if it's like a handful of five to say, then maybe 10 special guys. Okay, that's fine. Then we go the top 20, the top 30. Then I think there's this younger group of guys, and they're not only younger. But there's this group that I go, why do I keep debating who this player is when he's giving me all this evidence? Like, why would I even debate who Paul George is anymore? Like, I know who he is. He's incredibly talented. He's, but it's almost like he's a more expensive Jeff Green. I'm serious. Like, man, look, he's not, yeah, I know he's not <laughs> Jeff Green, but I just, you're going to look at the numbers. You'll see him at the end of the day and you're going to go, oh, this guy's incredible and he's a top 10 player. And then I go, yeah, but. Do I want it? Do I want that as my guy? And I understand too with the George thing, positionally, it would fit better. Ideally, you'd go, wait a minute, I want the big, huge wing who can play defense and play multiple positions and I want him off to the side and I want to put him to Westbrook. But I just don't think everybody's 25 point games are the same. And I'm starting to have these concerns about other guys where I go, is Brandon Ingram going to be really good or is Brandon Ingram just going to be kind of what he is now? Certain flashes, certain nights. And because he's huge and we think he's going to be really talented. And I like Brandon Ingram. So this isn't me trying to confirm doubt in him coming out. I really liked him. And I do think he's actually a little more physical, a little tougher. Just because he's so skinny, we don't want to give him that credit. But he's got a smoothness. And But then I go, okay, but we do this thing with these young guys where we think, okay, well, if he's this now, he's going to be this in three years. And for most of them, it actually doesn't change. It's almost like personal behavior. Do people really change? Do players really change. The special ones take leaps, but they show us glimpses of being special pretty early on in their career, except for a few exceptions. You know, Kawhi is the exception of a top five superstar who, by the way, can hit buckets late in close games. Did it against Sacramento last night, watching that one. But I'm starting to have like a weird Carl Anthony Towns thing where I go, you still take him one, all the stuff and the hope and the excitement about what he could be one, two years in, all that stuff's accurate. That was the right feeling to have. But then I watch a dude that just gets kind of pushed around and can be really apprehensive. And is that Butler's fault or is that his fault? So I guess I have almost like a, if this, if the NBA league were a fantasy league, 
I would have like 20 to 30 guys on notice that I had tabbed scout this player that I don't have on my fantasy team as I closely monitor them and start wondering, do all of us, not just me, do all of this collectively that are huge NBA fans, do we keep asking questions or having hope about players that are giving us so much evidence that they are the exact player that is right in front of us? I would say we do this with young NBA players, we do this with young quarterbacks. Like we yeah. always assume that their trajectory is always going to go up and in the, and at the same speed. And it doesn't totally. work that way. Like sometimes like a guy just has a good season and that's as good as he's going to be. Like it doesn't mean that he's going to take another leap and then another leap in year two and three. Like that doesn't happen. Some guys just are who they are. And we constantly fall into this trap of, and I think a lot of it in the NFL is coaching too, maybe not in the NBA, but I think we fall into the trap of just thinking, okay, well, this guy in three years is going to be, you know, a top five player. And that's, that's, there, there can only be five of those guys, right? So it's not, it's not always realistic to think that the trajectory is going to be the same for everyone. The quarterback call that you just made is great. I just went through QBR, 32 have qualified. So it's not just the 32, um, cause more than 32 guys have started, but these are the 32 qualifiers. The last one, two, three, four, five, the last five quarterbacks in QBR are these five quarterbacks. Baker Mayfield, this is brutal. Eli Manning, Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen. The four rookies in Eli Manning. Right? That's out to Eli. So what did we do? When Darnold started the year against the Lions? Oh, my God. Look at this. When Baker then beats Darnold coming in relief up Cleveland, they were right. Took him number one. And here's the thing. I'm not even dogging any of these guys. I'm just pointing out that number. I mean, Allen probably has the most likely bus factor out of any of the guys in that group. But statistically, four of your worst five guys are the guys that were taken in the first round, not including Lamar. So I think what you just said is a great example of kind of what I was saying with these NBA guys. So I don't know if that means come February I'm just going to start blasting dudes that don't get any better. But I just, I personally need to have less hope (laughs) for a lot of guys. I've been, I've been there on with Towns maybe even into last year. Like I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I've, and when I trade for him, would yeah. you give him the contract? You know, and dude, we haven't even gotten to Wiggins. Well, like Wiggins, yeah. I just watch a lot of these games and I go, oh wait, Wiggins is going to be that guy that we thought like in the second year was going to take that leap. And we thought he did like the first half of the season. And now you go, okay, he got that contract. And the thing is you can't not pay him. Maybe that needs to be challenged too, because you go, all right, cool. I, I lose the Wiggins asset that could be part of something else for nothing because I want to, I want to believe that he's like, ah, you know what? He's actually a two, maybe even a three. Maybe he's the Canadian Paul George. I think at this point they would they would want that. They'd prefer that. Canadian Paul George? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if he yeah. ends up being Paul George, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I, that that whole Timberwolves team to me is is uh, kind of a mess. And I, like, yeah, some of it's Jimmy Butler's fault to me. And he maybe he's just, you know, too hard on these young guys and they don't see, you know, see eye to eye. But I think part of it is just, they just thought these guys, Wiggins and Towns, would grow more than they have. Of course. But then you go, all right, is Butler stunning their goal? Well, you know, you can't sit there and say Wiggins and Towns need veteran leadership, bring in Butler, and then, you know, this is prior to this offseason, and then say, oh, well, last year Butler was too selfish offensively. Like, I don't think that's fair. And now Derrick Rose hitting threes and going for big number games here, as much fun as that is, and I'm happy that Derrick Rose has been able to just feel basketball happiness again. Even if he wasn't even your favorite guy, you know, I, I think it's just those of us that love hoops. Is there anyone out there going, "Oh, this sucks. I don't want Derrick Rose to to feel good about his basketball life again"? Like that's a that's a weird 
kind of thought place to live in. But is that is that worse for towns and, and Wiggins? And sometimes I go, okay, they're ignoring towns, they're ignoring towns, they're ignoring towns. And then I go, okay, wait a minute, you couldn't post up Kuzma? So I'm supposed to throw it to you again? So everybody's culpable in this thing, and I've just talked way too much about the tw- uh, the T-Wolves. So Sacramento, real quick, they lost last night to Toronto. It was actually a competitive game. And their losses are Utah, New Orleans. They beat Oklahoma City. They lost at Denver, who's terrific. Uh, although they lost to Memphis last night. It was a fun game. They beat Memphis, Washington, Miami, Orlando, Atlanta. They got destroyed by Milwaukee this past weekend. No big deal there, the Toronto. But they're 6-5. and five. And I'm going to offer up that they are kind of sneaky good still. And these numbers dipped a bit after an inefficient game from a couple of the players last night. I'm going to go ahead and and look for this. Yeah, like Buddy Heald didn't shoot it great even though he had 24 last night. But Buddy's at 20 a game. Darren Fox is at 19. Willie Cauley-Stein has been incredible for him this year. He's at 17 and 8. Um, who else has been really good? Marvin Bagley may not get the MVP award this year. I worry about that, his early prediction. Shumpert's their starter, but he plays less minutes. Um, they, they, almost all of their guys that play, they have, they have a rotation of, well, some of it's, some of it's all over the place because Justin Jackson's still playing, but he's not, he's only started a couple games. Belicia's good too. Their efficiency ratings, they have like six guys that are all right around 20, except for a little recent dip there from Heald. So it dipped a little bit from last night. But I I looked at Sacramento and said, this is pretty crazy, but the six top guys for them in shots and minutes, they're all playing at a really good efficiency level. So there you go. I just thought that was worth pointing out. It took me a little longer to do it. But now I think everybody's, how much better is your day now? That you know that Sacramento's efficiency rating for the top <laughs> six guys a little bit better than you thought. So you... uh just feel free if anybody starts bringing up the election and did you vote, and then you could just say in the back of the room, you go, fair, but did you know that Sacramento's top six guys in the rotation are all playing at above average efficiency right now, despite the loss to Toronto? Yeah. And then just see how the room plays. There's really no comeback for that. There isn't. Yes. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with that? There's another thing that I wrote out, and I want to, I don't know how long this is going to take me to do. How, how much time do you have, Saruti? I got an hour. Well, oh wow, that's that's a bit much. No, Half a part. Can we go double platinum album here. It'd be aggressive. Part one, part two. Yeah, like thirty. I see ghosts or kids see ghosts. Excuse me. Did you get any of the Kanye stuff? Or are you too woke for that now? No, I don't do that. No, oh, speaking not because I'm too woke. For, I it's because I, he's the music's bad. Ooh, Sorry. I don't know if it's bad though. Uh, it is. I don't know if it's bad. I think the music's good, Eesh. but I'm not super woke though. Speaking of, where were you as our resident millennial on the Michael Thomas celebration with the cell phone? I mean, I was fine with it, obviously. I just smashed the microphone I don't, in the background. You, know, I I, I, you were I, fine I, with it, even though it was a penalty? Yeah, I just don't... It, was it was it probably dumb? Yeah, I okay, don't know, but it, but it entertained me. I liked it, and it didn't really matter in the end. If it did matter in the end, I'm sure he would have gotten absolutely destroyed, um, but it didn't. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad so it playing didn't the because result. I enjoyed it. I am playing the result, but the I'm, result ha- I'm also happy because... I. Because I thought it was funny and I enjoyed it and I like Michael Thomas and I like this Saints team and I, you know, what am I supposed to do? Be mad at him for that? Like it was, it was awesome. 
awesome? Listen, it it wasn't awesome. I mean, it could be. It was a cool celebration. Yeah. And obviously, anyone who remembers the Joe Horn thing would think I, th- I thought would think it was awesome. And it didn't cost him the game, so I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to play okay. the results. All right, you're playing the result. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Um, you, you seem to feel differently. Okay, Stacey, I'm here. Whoa, whoa. Uh, I have no idea what's going on. I just get a weird, weird text about a some voice text. Being done. Yeah, voice text. I thought I was the only one that did voice text. I do it for one person. It's a dude. Don't even go there. And it's stupid. So I just get a voice text. Uh, I, yeah, I didn't think it was. I, I just found it odd that anybody that pointed out like that's kind of stupid and it cost you 15 yards in a game that's still tight and against a really good team in the Rams like why would you do something that is like this it's really simple like does that help them and hurt you oh it does well then don't do that thing and I wasn't but and then it turned into this thing where it's like oh you guys out there you know having to worry about what you should tell your children focus on and I'm like no I'm not doing that man I'm not doing that I just think it's I just think it was stupid. Okay, speaking of Troy Aikman, because that's kind of where this whole thing started, because Troy Aikman was like, why are you going to do that? And then Levitard called him out, and Levitard um, shockingly made it about a white-black thing, which uh, I was I was listening to the show, and I just went, <laughs> how the hell? Do-? I'm like, you got there on that? It's like white announcers, black players. I'm like, uh, all right, good. Let's hear some weekend observations instead, please. <laughs> so... <laughs> I've been listening to the Cowboys National Network, a.k.a. the Will Kane show, the last couple of days. Nice, yes. Yes. I mean, my God, does he have some Dallas Cowboys we're, content We're doing for it. Are we're you guys doing Doncic today, too, so we're, we're straying away from, from the Cowboys. Oh, you get some Mavs talking today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excellent. So, I want to not take forever on this, but I think I could, but I'm going to try not to, even though I've written it all out. What is the value in somebody... Like Troy Aikman calling out Jerry Jones, calling out the Sun, calling out the fact that Garrett's been there eight plus years. He's been in three playoff games. He's got a winning record, but it feels stale. The story's always been that Jones likes a guy like Garrett in place more so than a guy like Parcells, and he learned his lesson after Jimmy and after Parcells. He doesn't want those guys. He wants Dave Campo. He wants Chan Gailey. By the way, go back and look at the Chan Gailey years. Those are good years. But if Troy Aikman's saying tear it down, and he doesn't mean the owner's leaving, okay? But bringing an outside GM, and again, if I'm Jerry Jones, I may go, hey, you know what? You guys can beat up on me in all the talk shows all the time, and I haven't won as much of the playoffs as I probably should, and we're the Dallas Cowboys. You know what I like doing, though? Be in charge of the roster, because it's my bleeping team. And I don't know that I'd fault anybody for wanting to do that, even if that's super frustrating for the rest of Dallas fans, and especially Jones, because he's so out there as a public figure, the blowback on him is going to be ten times greater than any of these other guys, okay? So, if Troy Aikman were to then be named in a John Lynch, a John Elway role as the guy to fix this whole thing, I don't know that it would work, but I don't know enough to necessarily vote against it. But what happens is, and this happens a lot in my industry with TV shows, with radio shows, where decision makers make decisions for the press conference, make decisions to win short term without really knowing if they're going to win long term. And I would argue some of the TV show stuff is way short term win, almost guaranteeing a long term loss. But Elway is brought in. Let's get this thing right in Denver. Okay, you bring in Elway. There's no like what's the negative to Elway unless Elway were just 
incompetent, right? When Dan Marino was named as the guy for the Dolphins, everybody mocked it. Wayne Huizenga at the press conference, like, pushed Marino, and I'm exaggerating a bit, but, like, stood next to Marino, moved him behind the podium, and then started admonishing anybody for suggesting that this was anything more than just, um, you know, to, to calm the fan base. Cause that's, that's what happens is a lot of these hires, and it happens in college campuses all the time, but you just, okay, everybody's mad, everybody's negative. My fan base is really upset. How can I appease them and also hopefully make the right decision for a, say, college program or the point man for everything with my NFL franchise? You hire somebody that has love from the fans. So you already are winning. You're, you're choosing somebody with a great amount of public equity among your fan base. And so Elway, it was more than that, though, because he, as I've expressed before, was able to talk to Peyton Manning in a way that almost no one else could that was recruiting Manning to bring him in. So that's pro Elway. I don't think there's any doubt between a numbers guy or the different backgrounds other GMs have in all sorts of sports that being Elway with an agent and a free agent, there's something there that helps you. Okay, now Elway, since the early success, has not been good in the draft. And I don't know if that's that is eye is tricking him, that he's not listening to enough people, because there's a very strong now anti Elway argument out there about how this roster's been built despite all the early success. I don't know if John Lynch is going to be good, but I think John Lynch as the player, his demeanor, anybody that's ever interacted with him loves him. So that's not so much about being a player, but his just personality. But I don't know if San Francisco is going to work out. I actually think they did some dumb things with the Garoppolo contract where teams will do this thing where they actually overpay just to prove a point that they're committed. As if San Francisco's front office said, hey, you know what? Despite using any leverage in this negotiation, we want to use none of it, pay you too much, pay you $37 million in the first year. And I'm not even using the fact that he's hurt against them because that's not fair because we want to show how kind of into Jimmy Garoppolo we are and how we're ready to turn the next page. So the early returns on that, too early. We'll see what happens with the drafting, but I could see where John Lynch and someone like an Elway would have that kind of equity. So would Troy Aikman, in a just hypothetical here, would he have positives? Yeah. But then I also know there's other people in the NBA, this happens maybe a little bit more, where some former players get these decision-making gigs to run a franchise, and they're not good at it because they're not committed to the amount of work that goes into it, where some other franchises are better with a lesser known, a guy you may never have heard of. It's just an absolute grinder that knows he has to prove it every single day. So I don't know that there's a perfect resume to have to run these teams, but if an Aikman were to do that, everybody would cheer it. They would say, finally. But if he's still answering to Jerry Jones and Jones has final call, it doesn't really matter then, does it? Because that organization is different than, say, what Elway's able to do in Denver and certainly what Lynch is doing in San Francisco. Yeah, I sort of agree. My thing with Will, and I said this to Will, I don't think the Cowboys roster is that much of a disaster. I just think they need a better coach, and Dak has sort of regressed. I think if you fix Dak and fix the coach, that they're not that bad. I If I were a... An NFL team, I'd ask Dante Scarnecchia, how much, I'm going to hand you a blank check and will you fill it out and come fix our offensive line? Because our offensive line in Dallas is actually incredibly talented and we, we've seen what it can do. And you can talk about their left tackle regressing, you can talk about injuries, you know, not allowing them to be the same unit the way they were a couple years ago when it seemed almost unfair. But Scarnecchia fixes everything he's as good a positional coach new england fans have no idea how spoiled they are with what he has done up there over the years and i don't know man i I guess i'm 
maybe he just doesn't want to go anywhere. I don't know. Uh, let me double check something here. Okay. Skarnacki is 70. I give him a 30 year mm. contract. <laughs> I can, we'll, we'll give you one of those Steve Young annuities that we'll get to a little bit later with Steve Young. Uh, just so you know, decision makers in the NFL, and this can always be a bit of semantics between president, vice president, and actual general manager. So I could be missing something here. So try not to completely freak out and let it ruin your day if I miss somebody. But Lynch played, Elway played. Steve Kime with the Cardinals has one year with the Dolphins, but I couldn't find a lot on that. That was it. I don't know if it was just practice squad. Reggie McKenzie of the Raiders played for three teams. John Dorsey, actually the Packers, he played for the Packers for uh, – John Dorsey the Browns played for the Packers for like five or six seasons. Then you got Ozzie Newsom, the Hall of Famer. So there's six guys What there. position did John Dorsey play? Uh, I think he's an offensive lineman. Uh, that makes sense. Okay. He has to be, right? Uh, yeah, he just oozes offensive lineman. Yeah. If he if this comes back tight end, I'll I'll be okay with that. If it comes back flanker, I'll be a little surprised. Like he wasn't a he wasn't a corner. No, I can't I can't imagine he was a corner. Uh he's Oh man, come on, folks! He, oh, he might just be like the most entertaining guy. I I, I could just listen. Oh wait, to him wait, 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 hours. wait! Oh no, yeah, linebacker. He was oh. a U. He, by the way, he's a UConn linebacker. I went through every one of UConn. these front office. Whoa! You would be blown away. And I already kind of knew this with some of the Belichick stuff, and then the guy with the Jets, and then the uh, Quinn who's with um, the Lions. There are so many. It feels like half of the decision makers all came up through New England. Yeah, and they actually have a lot of good, you know, players, defensive players in the league. Actually, I, it's weird that their team is never good. But see, the thing is, is Dorsey. I thought his body type would be okay. He used to be like an old lineman back in the '80s, and this is what he looks like now. Apparently, yeah, Dorsey like just two sixty is a I don't know two forty is a is a linebacker. He's a fourth round pick. Yeah, he had little special teams there too. I went through every one of these guys' things last night. Hey, Rosillo, you meeting any chicks? Nope. Just. What's up? Just researching whether or not this guy with the Bills played high school football. <laughs> Some of the resumes of these guys are so, like, you wrote this, your mom wrote it. Because it would be a dude who was like, got no offers out of high school. None. Zero. Plays at some small school no one's ever heard of and then goes, retired due to injuries <laughs> after freshman year. Like, or did you retire because you weren't any good? Like, does it mean that if my back hurt my junior year in high school and I couldn't play varsity that I retired from professional basketball? Yeah, if you were in a front office, you could take credit for that. Yes. Had to retire with back injuries junior year in high school from professional basketball. Because, like, the vagueness of that suggests that you probably could have went pro. Yes, that's what I'm saying, is that some of these Wikipedia and other bios that I was going through were um, were really interesting. Okay, so there's there's those six or seven guys – there's different paths all over the place. Marty Herney, he was in journalism. The Redskins picked him up to work in their PR department. Next thing, he becomes a GM. Howie Roseman with the Eagles, he wrote letters throughout high school, which is something I started doing after college. I was writing letters. I wrote letters to every single professional sports team in the four major sports. Roseman wrote them to NFL teams. I think when he was an undergrad in college, he finally got hooked up with Tannenbaum there, who was with the Jets on hard knocks, ended up with the Dolphins. After he had a brief, weird career, where Mike Tenenbaum was going to represent media members in stuff, like as an agent. And then he got like right back with the Dolphins. I think Parcells finds a way 
or the owner of the Jets finds a way to get Tenenbaum gigs every single time. Bruce Allen, who was with the Redskins, who everybody thought that was a great thing to bring him in, get Snyder out of the way, kind of the thing that everybody wants Jerry Jones to do. Um, he brings in Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen had an agent run there too, but his father is also a legendary coach. The NBA, the GM president thing gets a little bit different because there's seven players in the NBA or seven GMs in the NBA that played, or I kind of just looked at as decision makers. It was a little easier for me to decipher all that stuff. Um, like Kevin Pritchard technically isn't the GM, but he kind of is. And so he had a little bit of a career. Baseball was weird. Jerry DePoto, the only decision maker, unless you include Billy Bean, who's no longer the GM, but again, that's that thing that I keep getting to. But as far as just GM, Jerry DePoto's the only GM in baseball that used to play. It's almost all numbers guys now, and that also relates to some story that no one talks about, but Bob Nightingale wrote about it this summer, is that these baseball managers, the whole, hey, I'll have this guy pitch an inning and all this stuff, this is all all from the front office. It's getting to the point where half of these managers are handed a spreadsheet and you go, follow this. And their salaries reflect that. I can't, you, when I tell you this, you're not going to be believed. Almost 20 of the Major League Baseball managers are in the one millions. Alex Cora's salary for the year isn't seven figures. It, it's starting at the year is $800,000. Cora may have made more at ESPN. That's a bummer. Wow. Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager, is making a million dollars. Now, you could all sit there and do the thing that's the worst. We'll go, oh, I would, you know, I would. No, you wouldn't because no one would hire you. Okay. I can't believe, like, no one, none of these, Sosha was the highest paid he's out. Joe Madden, who I heard for years, actually is one of those guys that follows Letter to the Law. You would think that with Theo and Jed, who are great in the front office of the Cubs, that the reason he does all the quirky stuff going back to Tampa and then with Chicago is because he's bored and wants to do stuff and make it look like he's actually the manager. And I've been told that he doesn't do anything. Francona's at four million. I think he's one of the best managers. I don't really love Francona, but he's a great manager. And he's at like four million. I think he's actually doing real stuff. So between Sosha, two of the top three guys are out. So the salaries keep going down more and more and more because the front office is like, and I get the GM should be paid more than the MLB manager, but that job stinks. Okay. Yeah, wait, that I'm, is, I'm looking that at is, this too. So Joe Torrey made seven and a half million dollars 11 years ago. Yeah, Tory made seven, and then the Dodgers, when McCourt, who had no money because Bud Seeley hooked up his friend with a franchise with the Dodgers that let him sell it at like four times the profit. The more I dig into some of the Seeley stuff, he was terrible. Like, he takes credit for revenue and all that stuff. Everybody's revenue went up in sports. Everybody. Everybody. Except for the WNBA. Um, you know, oh, we have more playoff teams. Yay. Congrats on expanding the playoffs from four teams. Uh, I don't even give Selig a hard time about the the steroid thing because that was more in the players' union fighting it all the time. But Selig was giving these these franchises that were up for sale. He was just saying, "No, I want this guy to own it. And I don't want that guy to own it. So you get to own it." I mean, thank God for the Red Sox that it worked out the way that it did. But he just ended bidding. He ended bidding and gave it to Henry. He gave McCourt this Dodgers team and McCourt because he was, I don't know, man. I'll, I'll just be nice about it. Um was kind of a clown show with this whole thing. He hired Tory to be like, oh, cool, we'll get the Yankees guy. And they paid him all of this money, and none of this stuff matters. So, you know, we can sit here and look at a million dollars is still a million dollars. Imagine if you're the Yankees manager and you're making a million dollars and you have to have a place down south and a place in 
you know, greater New York City. You know, greater you could do New Jersey, but a million dollars to be the Yankees manager, and it's noon. I mean, not noon, excuse me. It's from morning until you go to bed. Like, that's a long job with no days off, basically, from February until the playoffs. So, I don't know if the Cowboys should take Troy Aikman and run this thing. <laughs> that yeah, that that's these guys are like draft picks. I can understand anyone that's introduced running a front office happens in basketball too. It happened here in LA with Magic when Ainge was announced in Boston. It was new ownership. They wanted to do something exciting. They wanted to get Chris Wallace, you know, away from making all the final decisions. Bird was taken. Mikhail was taken. They go, who can we do? Let's grab one of the starting five from 86. They gave it to Ainge. I went on the air. I was like, eh, I don't know. Is it going to work? And it's worked, and he's great, and he's awesome, and he's ten times better um, than maybe a lot of people thought he would be. But I remember the sales staff at the place that I worked, because we had the Celtics right for radio, they go, why are you going on the air questioning this? I was like, I don't know, because he, you know, he was okay. He wasn't great as a coach in Phoenix, and he was announcing the games. It's kind of annoying when he does the games. And... They were like, shut up. It's good for sick, for ticket sales and sales for the station. This is going to get a lot of excitement. I was like, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? They're like, you know nothing. <laughs> the best part about that is like, you're, you're right to question it at the time, but it's 100% you to be like, what, what are we doing here? Like, yeah, I didn't know what the, what the organization is doing. And it wasn't me killing it. I just went, oh, hey, do we know that this is a slam dunk? And everybody was like, yeah, it's a slam dunk. It's awesome. And then I got called into the principal's office after a segment. Being like, what are you doing? So, I don't know if that segment had a point. I think the point in summation would be this. Would be, there's a million different guys you can hire, and not every path has to be the same. But there's nothing that replicates the excitement of hiring somebody who's kind of one of your own and has that equity with the fan base. I keep saying equity because it really is important. But much like a draft pick, it can make all the sense in the world. It can be the right measurables. It can be the right thing on paper. You can love the program the kid comes from, but you don't really know until that person has the job. And Elway's had a great start and a rough patch since. Lynch, we don't know. Ozzie Newsom, better than every one of these guys as far as the resume is concerned. There's basketball guys that are great at it. And then there's Bob Myers, who didn't playing the pros at all, who I'd put up there, maybe even above Ainge. And there's Isaiah's, who may know players really, really well, but can't help himself. Magic, who can be the best face of a franchise because he's the biggest freaking star, but it's pretty clear, because of that competitive drive, doesn't have the patience that maybe you'd need right now when you put together this weird roster around LeBron. So I don't have the perfect answer for any team that has a new guy that they need, but I kind of understand any any of the uh, really any of the decisions they make, and the whole reason I included the baseball thing is there because they don't care. They don't care. They're not about you know they don't they don't do those hires anymore. Maybe Jeter, but that's an ownership thing where he's you know doing the same thing as the other Marlins owner, as far as we can tell so far. Coming up after the break, Steve Young on all the USFL stuff. And just a reminder, keep the numbers cranking. Uh, back in Bristol, it was great to meet with everybody about the podcast. It's doing so well, and it's doing so well only because of you and every single one of you that subscribe, rate, and review, and uh, keep the Rosillo Show podcast rolling. At least just, uh, well, I guess I can't say at least because we're only allowed at this point to do one a week. I would do more, but we're just doing one a week, and I'm um, 
just a reminder, every time we get to see the numbers and everything, uh, it's it's worked. It's worked, and it's worked because of all of you. So thanks again. Okay, we're going to have Steve Young, Hall of Famer, works with us. And I don't want to talk necessarily about the NFL stuff. I want to talk about the USFL stuff because a book that I'd read a while, I've referenced a couple times from Jeff Perlman, who's wrote uh, a bunch of different stuff that's great, a Cowboys thing, a Lakers deal, but it's football for a buck. And even if you didn't know anything, about, I actually think this book is better for people that don't know anything about the USFL because the absurdity of these franchises, of this league, even the Trump factor alone, uh, you could just read that, Herschel Walker, and then Steve Young was this dude that didn't think he'd end up there and then ended up there out in L.A. playing for an insane owner. And the chapter on Steve Young is great. So check out Football for a Buck with Perlman. And I think anyone that – it just I love the business side of this stuff, but it's not boring because every chapter you go, this is insane. Like I can't possibly believe that this would happen. So we'll get to Steve here. Steve, let's start at the beginning. The 84 draft is coming up. You're still out in Provo. Lovely Provo. I've been there a couple times. <laughs> and the draft is coming up, and this USFL deal is is starting to make some noise. And it seems like Howard Cosell wants you to go there. Your agent's Lee Steinberg at the time. Take me to the very beginning when you're thinking about even the USFL as an option and maybe avoiding Cincinnati with the number one pick in the NFL. You know, uh, Ryan, it was, it was really – I love BYU. I love being there. I have not redshirted. And all my buddies that I came in as freshmen with are redshirted, so they're going to play another year. And so I was kind of leaving town when we were, you know, we were really good. We we just, we had almost gone undefeated. The Baylor beat us, or else we would have been undefeated. And we had another great team coming back. And I kind of wanted to stay, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm like, this is, this is good stuff, man. We can't get beat. I'm just killing it, you know. I'm stuck in the Heisman. Maybe, and I just ran out of, I ran out of time, so I had to go. Everyone else was sticking around. And, and uh, um, you know, the Bengals had come, and they said they wanted to draft in the first pick. Uh, Sam Weiss had flown out and said, look, we've decided to pick you. And, and, uh, and I, you know, the Don Klosterman all of a sudden showed up, uh, who had been with the Rams for many years. He, you know, uh, had just left the Rams kind of unceremoniously in some ways and uh, picked up with the Express. Um Sid Gilman was the was the uh, offensive coordinator. You can believe that. I mean, one of the great. Right. John Hadle was the John Hadle was the head coach, and it was in L.A. I'm very familiar with L.A. And you know, as strange as it sounds, as an 18 year old kid, or maybe by then I was 20, 21 or 22. I, I just you know the comfort levels of like the people. You know, here's these great coaches that I'd be around. I'd be in L.A. We live on the beach. Not not that that was like a big deal, but just. You know, um, and then I would be, and then also I could go play. I didn't really necessarily want to back up Kenny Anderson, so I, I was thinking to myself, you know, and Lee Steinberg, and he took me down to L.A. with Klosterman had this trip, and I went down and had, played pool with Joe Namath and, and uh, um, you know, just met all these guys that, uh, um, you know, said, look, you can do this. This is, I know it's unusual, but the USFL is great. Look at the people you're around, and, um, what they never really did was introduce me to the owner. Everyone kept me away from him. <laughs> right. Well, I, I definitely, I definitely want to get to the owner here because that's the the funniest part of the chapter. Um, well, maybe the scariest part. But it really felt like it was this combination of 
of Cincinnati. Cincinnati having that number one pick, then being notoriously cheap. You mentioned Ken Anderson. I mean, it sounds crazy to think that he'd be the number one overall pick, and I don't know how long they thought potentially you would be backing him up. If it had been any other team than Cincinnati, would this have even been a discussion about you going to the USFL? It depends. I don't know. You know, I mean, Don Klosterman was, I mean, he was, he was great. He was great with people. He the guy smooth. from the Express. He's been around right. a long time. Um, you know, he'd, 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 he was with the Rams. I mean, he was, he was, he was the NFL. So it was almost like, it wasn't, wasn't like the NFL and then this real weird group of people that didn't know what they were doing, you know, in a strange city, the gunslingers with uh, San Antonio, you know, it was really, it felt kind of similar. And if it was another team, maybe but the Dallas Cowboys, who I, Roger, Roger Staubach was my hero. There's no question. Got to go. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I certainly believe that Lee Steinberg's history with the Bengals before that, with uh, Barkowski and others, it just, uh, there's been some run-ins. That didn't help as well. That's for oh, sure. Okay, so in the history that I've looked at, and, and again, correct me at any point, Steve, if I get any of this stuff wrong, because I was just going through my notes <laughs> You'll last get it night. better than me, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Elway had just done a $5 million deal over five, so we're looking at like one per, and then Steinberg told the LA Express, okay, you've got to be over than that. And so, <laughs> however... However this works out, and I actually had a lot of sympathy for you last night reading all of your quotes historically about this stuff because you're this young kid and it becomes announced as a $42 million deal that's essentially an annuity, and I wanted to get to some of that stuff. So at, at what point does it go from it has to be more than $5 million to, on paper at least, a $42 million four-year contract with the LA Express? I'm, uh, I missed that, by the way. That, connect, that, that move from... You know, getting you know, because I was not. You got to remember, I was in college. It, I was not built to kind of like, hey, you got to get me every dollar. You got. I was almost like, look, I don't know if I want to get paid to do this. I'd rather just go play and, and and not have the pressure. And so, you know, but I was living with the realities. And okay, fine, fine. But Lee, he, you know, and the USFL were kind of combined to try to make as big a splash as possible, right? That's what they needed. Yeah. That's what they wanted. And so they concocted a way, and I didn't really. I, I knew that the annuity was a part of it, and I knew that uh, you know it was about. You know, you figure that you got a signing bonus of one and a half, and there was another annuity that they were going to fund. Uh, you know, with another couple million dollars that you know that you'd start getting paid, and this is 1984, so 85, so you start getting paid in like 2005 or something like that. And then you get paid for not maybe early in that, like ninety five and another ten years. You get starting to pay. You get paid for forty years. And if you add all that money up, it was forty two million dollars, and that's how they went. And that was the headline. And so as I signed it, you know, I remember the first. I mean, it was Jim Hill in, in L A. Was uh, the, he's still around? A great sportscaster. And he and you know we had the announcement, and he was the first one to interview me. And he goes, "Dude, a forty two million dollar man. How does that feel?" <laughs> I was like, "What? What are you talking about? Can't be so possible." And that stuck with me, and that was that was how I lived for the next two and a half years. Every conversation I had in my home, outside my house, with my friends, to the public, in the stadiums, and my teammates, everywhere I went to travel to play, I was a $42 million man, for better or worse. 
okay, before the deal was done, and I have all the specifics on the annuity because I want to ask a little bit about that, how much this actually worked out. So you you agree in principle, the Cincinnati Bengals are like, yeah, we're going to match that if we find oil underneath the stadium piece and then hang up, essentially. And then this is really the 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 climax of the story here. It's not even the $42 million, It's the express owner, Bill Oldenburg, Jay Will, I believe, um, William Oldenburg, you're up at his headquarters in San Francisco. You go up with Steinberg, you meet with Klosterman, and meet with all the express attorneys, and essentially it's going to be this really long 12, 14-hour session of hammering out all the guarantees and all the specifics in your contract, and then you meet the owner who apparently thought this was going to be done in minutes. So what was your first impression that day of uh, Oldenburg? Yeah, so he we private jet from Provo. Uh, Utah, uh, and I'm um, flying out in a private jet to San Francisco. We landed SFO, and I get out, and outside the plane is, uh, uh, you know, the Bentley, the, this huge, beautiful Bentley, or the guy driving on the right side, you know, like, like in England. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And the doors, kind of suicide doors open up, and there's like this, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, and drove downtown to the Transamerica building, go up. As you walk into his office, it's an ornate, Wood, incredible. They had this, you know, ticker tape thing going across that, uh, um, you know, welcome Steve Young, congratulations, you're the man, uh, you know, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And uh, we go into a room and, and, and Lee starts to read the contract with my dad, and it really wasn't supposed to be a 12 hour session. It really was going to be, he had a birthday party, his golden was his birthday. He was going out to dinner. He wanted he to announce like, hey, you as part of the birthday. Yeah, let's sign this. So we're done, right? I got there about probably five thirty, six o'clock at night. He's like, I want to be done by six thirty. But my dad, who's a you know, he's a labor lawyer and uh, uh -oh. really worked. Uh, you know, he'd been he'd, he'd worked with Lee and choosing Lee, and he'd worked with Reggie White and a couple other guys that I met in my senior senior bowls and so forth because he was the dad who was a lawyer could help give people some advice. And so all of a sudden, he felt the responsibility to read the contract. And so he's on the phone with Lee, and Lee is on the phone reading him. He doesn't have a copy of it. He's reading him every section of the contract, word for word. And my dad's like, "Hold up, hold up! What did I read that again? And what did I? I got to, you know, could you? I got to write this down." And so it went. So it got into eight thirty, nine o'clock, nine thirty, ten. And I guess I, I, I'd heard that he was Goldenberg was just like getting impatient, frustrated, uh, upset. And I'm just sitting there losing my Lee and my dad go through this contract, and you could see Lee like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I have to read every word here. This is driving me crazy. But I wanted him to because, like, I trusted my dad. Right? I was like, might as well get another eyeball on this thing. And yeah, so that makes sense. Maybe yeah, maybe 10 o'clock. That's it. Oliver comes bar blowing into the room. You want more money? Is that what the problem is? It's about money. And he takes a big wad of hundreds. And he's like a big wad, like a whole handful. And he throws them at me and hits me with this wad of hundreds. Like, you want more money? Here's more money. So swearing at me. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I, I just had this weird existential moment. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I just got hit with a bunch of hundreds. And like, I think I'm going to pick them up. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to just, I don't know how this is going to go, but these hundreds are mine. He just threw them at me. I'm, I'm going to wrap these up. So, uh, and then he, that, so then it took on even longer time. Another hour went by. And that's when he confronted me and they had me go in the office and he's like poking me in the chest and trying to push me. Didn't and he call you? Him, 
Right. I mean, I, 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 in the book, it says it's at this point, it's 3 a.m. and that he's hammered because he's been waiting to go to this party. You might have been right. Yeah, very well might have been. I don't know if it's three, but it's, well, uh, you're did he, right. If it's, did, it's he call well you, midnight, he's, did he call you a bleeping he, Mormon and stick yeah. his finger in your chest? <laughs> yes. Oh, way more than that. Are you kidding me? It was unbelievable. So oh, what did you God. do? Yeah. What did you do? I, I, I told him, I said, well, finally, he's pushing me. He my head. You can hit me one more time, I'm throwing you out the window. <laughs> you know, because it's glass, you know, I'm like, oh, that's it. We're not, you know, at some point, I, I, you know, this is, this is weird. This is crazy. I don't know what's going on, but you can't, don't hit me one more. I'm like, that's it. Bro, this is the last. And, uh, and then, then we got escorted out. They kicked you out. The, the security guards came in with Don Klosterman and me and Lee, and they escorted us out. Like, you're leaving the building, grab your stuff. You know, you know, as if we were under arrest. <laughs> and so we got poured out in the middle of the night in in uh, San Francisco. Like the streets are just quiet, and we're now it's like three a.m. We got no ride. We got no, we got nothing. And uh, that was the you know that was our that was that was my welcome to the USFL. So he calls you the next day. He apologizes for his, his drunken tirade. <laughs> you get the deal done. And then is it true when you were about to be announced after the papers have been signed and you're going to be the LA Express starting quarterback? Because another thing is that you'd be able to start right away. Did it, is it true that at the press conference you had like a, you were sick to your stomach, second thoughts, and you didn't want to go out there? Like you wanted to not go oh, out there and, and I was end dying. it? I, I was, I just, I, I, I think that the enormity of, of what this was now going to be with this contract. And what, you know, cause all, I, I would, you know, I, I'm a guy that's in my head a lot and I'm always thinking about what other people are thinking about and how are they going to, you know, I, I, and I knew enough players that were playing ahead of me a couple of years and what, you know, how, you know, it was just, it was all out of whack. And I think it just hit me all at that moment. By the time I got home and got settled in, I got to go pack and get back there. You know, then it was just a job to go do, but I think right at that moment, everything combined, you know, like. This is this is not the NFL. Why am I? You know, why? Am, what am I doing exactly again? What? And I think that you know, there was a moment I got lightheaded. I remember I, I was getting interviewed by Jim Hill. Like I told you, I was like, I, I think I fell backwards. I almost fainted because I think I don't know how. What's the next move I'm going to make in my life? It was crazy. Did you have any? Because you what you missed the first six games of your rookie year because you're actually finishing up classes right at the USFL because of the way the schedule. Well, played I got out signed in the middle of the season. Right, so you finished. Like the season was going on. Right. right, so you get the last twelve in. Was there any point that you actually had fun? Like, did you actually get to the point of like, okay, wait a minute, we're out here, I'm playing football, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? As soon I, as I played, everything about everything about being down there and making the transition and uh, with older guys that were now pros, that's a whole new dynamic that I wasn't ready for. Um, you know, just all of it was super tough. Living in the Marriott, you know. Driving down, I mean, uh, nothing was easy about it, but the but the football, Sid coaching me, you know, some of the best things I ever learned about quarterbacking, some of the stuff that really was bedrock to why I was any good in the future was happening right there, and I loved playing. I mean, it was weird when we played in the Coliseum with a thousand people. So that was a great story why I had to move the huddle back because the defense could hear the call, you know, because it was so quiet, <laughs> and and you know, it's just but the football part of it, the, just the fun of you know, I remember one time we were, I said, look, just snap it over my head and we're in the shotgun, just snap it over my head, we'll see what happens, you know, and we just, and who knew that when I went to Tampa Bay, Ryan, when I went to Tampa Bay, 
and realized what was happening there, I'm like, man, the football in L.A. is much better than the football in Tampa Bay. Yeah, that's the irony. I mean, you think about that my I, team, right? My right, team, that, was, I, had, I, had another, I had another pro football Hall of Famer sitting next to me in Gary Zimmerman. I mean, the team that Don Colossum put together, we were young, but we were good. We had a lot of great players. That's, I think, what Perlman does a great job of in the book is that it would be really easy because I remember watching those games. And I'm a I'm a kid, so I don't I don't know. I mean, it was just cool. So I didn't know that the gap was was you know it could have been monstrous. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. You know, I don't know what the right, hell you guys are doing. I'm nine years old, course, right? right? So right. when I when I read the book, I thought, okay, are they? Is this just sort of a pro USFL slant on history that it was a lot closer in talent level and that these teams are getting better and better? But then you start looking at the actual migration of USFL players to the NFL, and it can't be debated. I mean, you guys had some really talented rosters with horribly run teams. I think is kind of the moral of the thing. There were a few teams that were run really well, but I think the irony of your personal story is that you're out LA Express, USFL, this awful owner who gets up being exposed as a total real estate fraud who's completely out of control, and yet you end up at Tampa in the NFL, which was worse. It was. Uh, it was. I remember thinking about it. In fact, it was the, it, just the culture of it was was so so bad. It was entrenched, like losing attitudes. It was like I, I remember one of my one of my most uh, you know uh, memories that I, I just visceral like I you know it's like what do you do, what do you think about those days? It was the first game I played. We played the Detroit Lions at home. We go in at halftime, and I sit down and we're waiting for Lehman Bennett to come back in and tell us what to do. And I swear to you, over half the team lights up smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? Where am I? <laughs> this is impossible. This is football. You can't be smoking in the locker room at halftime. And it was just it was a was a, it was a setting that I think said a lot about um, just the NFL. I mean, just have a bay at that time. It was a tough. It was a tough spot. There was some great players, James Wilder. I mean, there's some tremendous human beings and tremendous football players. But as a group, it was it was not good. We're going to get to five questions with Steve Young, including Brady Montana, who is better. But first, a word from First Leaf. The only online wine club that uses your ratings to make personalized wine selections match to your taste. It's the only wine club tailored to you. The more wine you taste and rate, the better they customize your box based on the wines you like. And when you sign up with my personal link, you get your three-pack of introductory wine for only $15 plus free shipping. If you then rate your first three wines, that's the whole point here, you'll get an extra $10 off your next box of wine. So when it comes to buying wine, most of our choices are made out of habit. We don't remember how we found our favorites. We just know that when we're all at checkout, those same brands and bottles are in our carts week after week. Tell me about it. My wife in the Pinot. First Leaf is a new online wine club that's putting a stop to boring wine buying by helping you discover your new favorite wines. Every shipment is curated to your taste based on your ratings of the wines. Get it? All right, so... I just went through it. I did it myself. I started by answering three quick questions about my wine drinking preferences. First Leaf created an introductory three-pack of wine for me based on the flavor profile. A light Pinot, perhaps. Dry. Best part is you get all three for just $5 each. So not only is this hooking you up down the road, so you become smart at this stuff. And you guys in your 20s, you really stand out if you can do that. Because I don't know why, but people really seem to be impressed if you know about somebody's wine specter rating. But you can do your own ratings now. Uh, these wines should go for like 20 bucks a piece. When the first bottles arrive for me, taste them, rate them online. First Leaf took the ratings and selected new wines based on my taste for the next shipment. This is fun too, folks. Think about something new. Bored? Out of shows on Netflix? 
Get a wine subscription to First Leaf. Their experts are constantly exploring new wines for me to taste and rate. It's amazing how accurate they are at selecting the wines I love. After reading just my first three wines the next shipment, I got was almost perfect. Five out of the six were spot on. And my shipments are only going to get better the more wines that I rate. With First Leaf, you never have to worry about spending money on a bad bottle of wine. They guarantee you'll love wine you buy or they'll give you your money back. So try First Leaf Wine Club today where buying great wine is simple. Sign up with my personal link. You'll get an exclusive intro offer. It's three bottles of wine for only $15 plus free shipping. That's not all. If you rate these three wines, you'll get an extra $10 off your next box. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash Rosillo. That's tryfirstleaf slash Rosillo. Okay, we do this with our guests. It's five questions at the end. Rapid fire. Uh, you ready to go? <laughs> sure. Okay. I'm warmed up. <laughs> if you could throw to any wide receiver not named Jerry Rice, current player, former player, who would you want to throw to? Randy Moss. Yeah, great answer. Uh, well, I'm honestly, I mean, the most phenomenal athlete, other than John Taylor, the most phenomenal athlete I've ever watched that uh, that played receiver. That just could, if I could get him running routes and really focusing like Tom did in 2008, oof, wow. Okay, uh, you knew that you've been asked this one a bunch, but we just want to make it. You know, you, who who was the more talented quarterback, you or Montana? What do you? What is this? What is this? This is what are you trying to do to me? What do you mean talent? Like uh, you know, singing? I was a better singer. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> this is crazy. Okay, all right. How about we do that? We'll leave you out of it. Who do you think's the better quarterback, Brady or Montana? Well, look, I will. I'm not. This is not necessarily political. This really is true. What they're asked to do in different generations—that's the key. And so, in each That's generation, fine. what I'm seeing Tom do today, there's nothing that Tom does that Joe couldn't do. And so they, 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 in the generations, like I would, everyone, one of us would like to be playing right now, by the way. I mean, my gosh, sit in a, in a gun, have a little, you know, RPO fake, watch safeties have to commit, don't have any time to spend together in the spring, no time in the summer, and I know everything. That's a pretty good place to be. I do think about you playing today, and I mean, for the younger listeners of this podcast, I don't, like, you, you've had, when you were at your peak and your stretch, I mean, it was it was unbelievable, um, and you already know that. I mean, you don't you don't need to hear how good you are again from me. But I think you of any of the previous generation quarterbacks in today's rules may have benefited the most. I really do think that with oh, your style of play. Uh, Ryan, I, I I remember watching RG three in two thousand twelve when I started to do the all the kind of movement stuff, and then start also coming off the fakes that were allowed. I know I was like Bill Wallace was such a genius. Bill, why weren't we in the shotgun in nineteen eighty five? Like, what are we doing, man? Why do I have Roger Craig next to me and sit up there and just kind of spread the field? And, and it's just like, what? This is the thing. And then have the rule. The rule changes make the biggest difference, right? You can't grab the receivers. You can't. But like Tom was telling me the other day, the middle of the field is unpatrolled. No one can hit anybody in there. And so it's just wide open. If you know what you're doing as a quarterback, it's like, it's just too much fun. It's like, I can't, and no one can hit me. That's the other thing that's big for the guys now. It's like, I know nobody's really going to hit me hard. I, that would have been nice for you. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Been, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, okay. I love it. It'd be great. We got two more quick ones. If you had gone to any uh, other school besides BYU, where? I was headed to North Carolina. I kind I'm of kidding. committed, half committed there already. And uh, I was going to, and in fact, my freshman year when I was eighth string quarterback at BYU, I remember calling my dad, like, I screwed this up. I should be in North Carolina. I might have a shot to play. Because the kid who who's, who's the starter was already hurt, uh, you know, first couple of games of the season, and uh, North Carolina was my spot. 
Last one. During, I think, the second year you were in the USFL, you were out of running backs, and then you decided to play running back. Could you have been a 10-year running back in the NFL? No chance. Zero. There's no way I can run up in the eye and do anything. No way. It wasn't really my spot. The only thing that happened there was that we were in the last game of the US. We were all headed out. Everyone knew that it was ending, and we were in Orlando, and the halftime, John Hale goes, uh, 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 Sire was my my backup quarterback, and they said he, he, he they want to see him play because the Kansas City Chiefs want to kind of get some get some film on him. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And they didn't have another running back. And I remember playing running back, and going, this is tough. This is tougher than I thought because I'd never played anything else in my life. But no, no chance that I could be a good running back in the NFL. Still humble, uh, Steve Young. You're the no, best man. That right. was <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> I think you're a little bit better runner than you're giving yourself credit for. But uh, I hope you had fun with that because when I was reading that chapter, I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to talk to Steve about some of this stuff because we could have probably done an hour just on Oldenburg. But, you know. Oh, I, I yeah, didn't we didn't even touch this. There's a couple other things. We, and just some of the stories of having a paid bus driver, they went cash only. Anything that happened in the LA Express towards the end was like cash only. And like the bus driver picks us up to take us to the, to the, to the game. He's like, I, I can't take you unless you pay me in cash. No one has any money. So, so you like, pay what it. are we going to do? Yeah. So I went, I had some, I had a few bucks in my pocket. I'm like, okay, we'll play it. Cause half the guy's like, oh, babe, I'm going to go home. I'm like, no, we got to play. We got to go. Let's go. Hey, Steve, we'll, uh, we'll check you out soon, man. Enjoy the rest of the season. Okay. Thanks. See you, Ryan. Take care, buddy.